But not only that, we're going to think about what significance, what importance does that have for us who are believers in Jesus Christ? See, it's not just a a little-known fact that you might read about in Acts chapter 1. This has ongoing significance for us today, and we'll see that. Well, first of all, we really need to talk about what is Christ's ascension. What is the ascension of Jesus Christ? Well, you need to understand that after Jesus finished His earthly mission here on this earth, He ascended into heaven, and He did that 40 days after His resurrection. And He, of course, on and off appeared to various people during those 40 days, and He continued to minister. But then eventually Christ returned to heaven in His glorified body. The Bible says He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father there in heaven. From every indication of Scripture, Christ is going to retain His glorified humanity forever. Uh, Just reference one passage that indicates that in Revelation chapter 5, when it talks about the great throne scene there in heaven, it talks about a lamb who appears there at the throne as slain. So it appears that He will have that glorified humanity forever. The Bible says Christ ascended into heaven as a glorified God-man. Two natures in one person forever. And the Bible says He is going to return the same way that He left. So while the incarnation was Jesus' descent from heaven, we talk a lot about that at Christmas time. How often do we talk about the ascent, which could possibly be even more important than the descent? So we're going to talk about the ascension being His return to heaven. Now here's the key text that we want to read together. So let's start our scripture reading in Mark chapter 16, verse 19. Mark 16, verse 19 says this, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, that's the disciples, He was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. We'll just read the text together and then explain them as we go. But look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 also describes the the ascension of Jesus Christ. Luke 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's talking to His disciples. Look what the Bible says, Luke 24, verse 49. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, that's over by the Mount of Olives, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Look at Luke's other account of the early church, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So this is continuing Luke's account from the gospel that he just wrote there for us. So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, that's the book of Luke, 
He says, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So those key texts help explain Christ's ascension for us. But let's talk about the specific nature of this ascension. But you need to understand that The liberals have been attacking all sorts of things in the Bible, including these very passages. Of course, they don't usually believe in the miracles of the Bible. And, of course, this was a miracle, and they don't particularly like the person and work of Jesus Christ, so they'll find all kinds of ways to attack him. And so these passages have been under attack for many decades now. So let's talk about the nature of the ascension. First of all, we we notice that it is a bodily and visible ascension. So take note, it's the same Jesus Christ that the disciples had known in life. The the difference here, though, is this is post-resurrection, so he has a glorified body. But nevertheless, it was a body that had flesh and bones, And some might ask, well, why is this truth important? Isn't this kind of obvious? Well, it might be to you, but like I said, it's it's the very thing the liberals are attacking. See, Christ's ascension was not a vision. The disciples were not having a hallucination. They were not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And this is not only a spiritual ascension. That's what... Often the liberals will say, though, that they're having a vision or some hallucination or it's only spiritual. But the record in Scripture leaves no doubt here that the disciples are wide awake. And they actually saw Christ's body rise up from this earth and disappear into the clouds as He left this earth. In fact, Luke 24, 51 says this, While He blessed them, He parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. No indication at all that they're sleeping or having a vision or hallucinating. No indication that this is only spiritual. It is clearly a bodily ascension and a visible ascension. 
Number two, what's the nature of the ascension? Well, we see here Christ passed up through the heavens. Hebrews 4, verse 14 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice Hebrews 4 mentions Jesus passing through the plural heavens. There's an S on the end of the word heaven. So, Christ passed through all the heavens, in other words, and up to the highest heaven where He is higher than all the other heavens. And so this means that on His way to the heaven of heavens, He overcame all the evil principalities and the powers that inhabit the heavenlies. And no doubt they would have tried to stop Jesus from getting to the Father, to getting to heaven. They probably did their best effort. Imagine, uh, imagine it this way. Imagine one, one person on a rugby field versus, versus thousands of other rugby players, and the one person has the rugby ball trying to get to the other end and score a try. And thousands of rugby players are on the other side trying to stop him from getting that ball down in the grass. I know that's a really bad analogy. It's a bad illustration, is it not? But I didn't know how else to illustrate it for you. It was far more difficult, far more scary, if you will, situation for Christ, passing through the heavens on the way to the heaven of heavens. But of course, nothing could stop him. And so just as the high priest passed through the veil into the holy place, So Christ passed through the heavens into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies of heaven. So number two, we've seen that Christ passed through the heavens. But number three, Christ ascended to a real place. It's a real place. See, the Bible says Jesus went to a place. We'll read that in a moment. But as we've read here, it's important for us to understand, He didn't just disappear from the disciples. But he gradually ascended as the disciples were watching him ascend. And so the fact that Jesus had a resurrection body that was subject to spatial limitations means that Jesus went somewhere when he ascended into heaven. For whatever reasons we'll never probably fully understand, Jesus has chosen to maintain his humanity. I suppose he could have returned to his deity in his form that he was before his incarnation, but he chose to remain the God-man, God and man, two natures in one person forever. So look what the Bible says. Look, In fact, look what Jesus himself said in John 14 before his ascension. He said this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Notice Jesus talks about a place. It's a real place. A place that can be seen, touched, felt. So my friends... Even though we we can't see where Jesus Christ is now, that doesn't mean that He somehow 
passed into some ethereal state of being that has no location. It doesn't mean that it, it, it isn't within our time-space universe. In fact, Christ ascended to a real place. We can't see it at the moment, but there have been people who, who have seen it. For example, read the book of Acts. The first martyr, Stephen, somehow was able to see heaven. He talks about it as a real place. And so why is this truth important? Well, this truth answers the question, how do we know that heaven is a place and it's not just some spiritual state or condition? The answer is that Christ's human body is actually in this place. So heaven has to be a real place. Do we know where heaven is? Well, if you're wondering and you're wanting me to tell you where heaven is, I'm sorry. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly where heaven is. And no powerful telescope has ever found it. But it is a real place, nevertheless. Number four, we also need to note that Christ, when He ascended to heaven, received glory, honor, and authority. Before Jesus died, He prayed in John chapter 17, He said this, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world was made. Does God answer Jesus' prayer? Absolutely. Jesus cannot pray a prayer that God the Father would never answer. And so Christ's prayer is being answered, continually being answered. The Bible says that Christ is now in heaven with all the angelic choirs singing praise to Jesus Christ. And if you wonder what are the angelic choirs singing to Jesus, just read Revelation 4 and 5 and you'll get a flavor. Here's just one verse. Revelation 5, 12 says this. Here's what they're singing to Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So Christ received the glory and the honor and authority that He deserves. But we also see in Scripture that Christ took His place at the Father's right hand. He took His place at the Father's right hand. There's multiple Scriptures that talk about this. I, I believe this is far more significant than we will ever give it credit. But let me just show you a couple passages that talk about this. For example, in Colossians 3 verse 1, It says, if you have been raised with Christ, that's all believers, it says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what does it mean then when the scriptures and Jesus himself even talk about being at the right hand of God? Well, the the debate goes something like this. Is this a definite place? Or is it just simply a figure of speech denoting some place of authority and power? So is it literal or is it figurative? Well, let me ask you this. Why can't it be both? (laughs) I see no reason myself why it can't be both. Uh, From the throne of God, Christ is exercising His authority and power. And so the fact that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God in heaven, by the way, it, 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 well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean, all right? It doesn't mean that somehow Jesus is 
is permanently and perpetually fixed in one spot. Jesus is not a couch potato. Right? He, he doesn't have his, you know, people bringing him stuff and, and he's just sitting there doing nothing there at the Father's right hand. That is certainly not what it means. It doesn't mean he is inactive. And the reason we know that is because the Bible talks about various other things that Jesus is doing in heaven. Uh, for example, the Bible talks about Jesus standing. The, the Bible in Revelation talks about Jesus walking among the golden lampstands, which of course represent his churches. So he is alive and active and at work is the point I'm trying to make. And so if you compare Jesus, the king of kings, to an earthly king, so this might be helpful. So just as a human king would sit on his royal throne at his ascension to the kingship, then he would, of course, then he would engage himself in many other activities throughout each day. Well, that's, that's a good illustration for Jesus. That's the way Jesus is, is acting and ministering. Jesus sat at the right hand of God as a dramatic evidence of his completed work in, in redemption. It shows his, the reception of his authority over the whole universe. But he is certainly engaged in other activities in heaven as well. I'll give you another text here that shows Christ receiving authority over the universe. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says this, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name. My friends, Jesus is not a perpetually uh, sitting in, in front of some TV, acting like a couch potato. He is active and working. Well, that leads me to an important question. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant? In other words, is this important for you and for me? And the short answer is yes, it is absolutely crucial that, that Christ ascended to heaven. And what does this mean for us? Well, it means a lot. So let's think of several points that we see in various scriptures. Number one, Christ's ascension commences his re-exaltation and enthronement. Let's look at one passage, Philippians chapter 2. Please turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is, the, I think, the last passage I'll have you turn to, and the rest I'll have on the screen for you. Philippians chapter 2. So it's after Ephesians, and it's before Colossians. So Philippians 2. Verse 5 starts talking about his humiliation, but it eventually gets to his exaltation. So let's start in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A wonderful passage that talks about Jesus' re-exaltation and enthronement. Christ's exaltation included sovereign authority over all creatures. And notice the text says where He rules. It includes heaven. The Bible also says He rules over all the creatures on earth, as well as a third category there. Notice it's also under the earth. So clearly all people are going to bow to King Jesus one day. And by the way, you say, well, who or what are these creatures under the earth? Well, my best understanding is they're probably the unsaved, unbelievers, the lost of this world. Since God's family is either in heaven or on earth, it never says that God's family is under the earth. The implication is that these are the unsaved. So one day it says, all will bow before King Jesus. And notice, what are they going to confess? They will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is their master. So of course it is possible for people to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord today. I hope you've already done that today. And I hope you'll do it tomorrow and you'll keep doing it the rest of your life. Because that's who He is. He is Lord. And so people, of course, can, can do, they, they can do that today. They don't have to wait. But to bow before Him now means salvation. But to bow before King Jesus at the judgment means they stand before Him condemned. And there will be no second chance. But they will recognize Him as Lord, nevertheless. And number two, why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant? Because it ends his self-limitation. It ends his self-limitation. See, we already read in Philippians 2, verses 9-11, through 11, that Jesus is exalted. And so we have to ask then the question, in what ways did Jesus Christ limit himself? See, when he took on the form of mankind, as Philippians 2 says, you need to understand, he, didn't al- he wasn't always that way. See, he also used to be a spirit, just like God the Father and the Holy Spirit are spirit. Jesus himself used to be that way when he was with the Trinity in those days and eternity past. And so you need to, na- to take note that these self-limitations that Jesus took upon himself are temporary, other than the fact he will remain as the God-man, these other things are temporary. For example, Jesus temporarily denied His divine glory. He took the, well, I should say, He forsook the worship of the saints and the angels in heaven to come to earth to be persecuted by sinful men. That was a self-limitation. He chose that. Number two, Jesus emptied Himself of independent divine authority. For example, in John 6, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of Him who sent me. So he gave up that independent divine authority. And number three, Jesus emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. Not all of them, some of them. But you need to understand he still maintained the essence of his deity. At no point did Jesus ever stop being God, in other words. (laughs) He's always been God. He was God when he was here on earth, and he still is God, okay? Please understand that. Just because he chose, he limited himself in aspects such as he was no longer all present. He, he, he squelched some of his, his very uh, attributes, such as he was no longer all powerful in some ways. All right, those sort of things. He was still God. He voluntarily gave up some of those divine attributes. And number four, Jesus emptied himself of his eternal riches. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, For your sake he became poor. For your sake he became poor. Number five, Jesus emptied himself temporarily of his unique relationship with his heavenly Father. So he did that to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, that the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. See, you'll never understand this if you don't understand the nature of God, that He is holy, He is totally unique, distinct, and separate from His creation, and part of that is that He is sinless. He's not tainted and corrupted by sin at all. And so for the Father to make Jesus who knew no sin to be sin. Well, it's, it's almost blasphemy. It's incredible to think about it. And so Jesus had to temporarily change this unique relationship with His heavenly Father so that He could bear your sin. So those things are temporary. But in Jesus' exaltation, in His ascension those self-limitations came off. And in his book called Miracles, C.S. Lewis offers some helpful insight, I think, for understanding Christ's incarnation and his self-limitation. Think about this. I'm quoting from C.S. Lewis here. In the Christian story, God descended to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with a whole mass swaying on his shoulders. End quote. I hope that helps. He had to stoop real low, my friends. He limited himself to reascend. Number three, how is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant even for us to today? Well, it confirms God's approval of his redemptive work. It confirms God's approval of 
Christ's redemptive work. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So my friends, the seat that Christ has taken is the throne of God. And as He's there, He rules and He reigns as a sovereign Lord over all of His creation. And so this depicts a victorious Savior. Yes, in one aspect, we see a lamb as if he had been slain. But my friends, we also see the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is a victorious Savior. He's not a defeated martyr. And so while the primary thrust of sitting down is the enthronement of Christ, he is sitting also there at the throne of God, which implies the completion of His atoning work. It's a completed work. Number four. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant for you? Well, it activates the intercessory ministry of Christ. Praise God, He is praying for you. Romans 8, 34, a precious verse says this, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's a mind-blowing thought, my friends, that Jesus is continually praying for His people. It should be encouraging to you and to me that Jesus is praying for us. He always prays for us. And by the way, when Jesus prays, it's always according to the Father's will so that we, we then know that His requests are going to be answered. I love what one theologian said. Louis Burkhoff says this, I quote, It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us. Even when we are negligent in our prayer life, that He is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that He prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end, end quote. And if you don't believe what Burkhoff just wrote, read Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prayed exactly that for you, for me. Number five, why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant for you? Because it allows Christ to act as high priest on our behalf. Hebrews 9.24 says this, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So my friends, we are richly blessed, even today, we're richly blessed because Christ continues to minister for His people. 
Christ's high priestly ministry is being exercised not in a temple, not in a tabernacle made with human hands, but in the perfect tabernacle of heaven. The real high priest is Jesus, of course, who offered the real sacrifice for sin, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and now he serves in this real tabernacle. The earthly sacrifices, the temples, the tabernacles, the Bible says they're just copies, cheap copies of the real thing which is in heaven. And so Jesus, my friends, is the complete fulfillment then of the copies that you read about in the book of Leviticus. Those things you read in Leviticus weren't an end in themselves. They were all pointing to King Jesus, who is also a priest. Number six. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant for you today? Because it allows the Holy Spirit to come into the world to indwell believers and to convict sinners. John 16 tells us this in verse 7. Jesus speaks and he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Let me just highlight that phrase, my friends. Did you see what Jesus just said? He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. You say, is there anything better than Jesus? According to Jesus, there is something better than Him, and He tells us what it is. Because He says, it is to your advantage that I go to heaven. Because He says, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Look at the three ministries of the Holy Spirit. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And if you read on in that text, you'll find a further elaboration of what Jesus is talking about there. But it's mind-boggling for us to think of this, my friends, that Christ says, if he goes away, it is advantageous. In other words, there is an advantage for you if Jesus goes to heaven. If his physical presence is away from us, it is better. I I just have a hard time believing that. If it wasn't for him saying it, I don't think I could believe that. So how can that be? Well, the reason is simply you get the Holy Spirit. You get the third person of the Trinity. You say, well, what is the Spirit doing? He's doing three things. He's, number one, he's convicting people of their sin, including you and me. You say, well, what sin is he convicting of? Well, if you read on in verse 9, it specifically states he is convicting unbelievers that they need the Savior. Someone can't become a Christian unless... They recognize, first of all, that they're a sinner in need of Jesus as their Savior. And so their sin is not believing in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. By the way, this is the only sin that ultimately damns them to hell. But second of all, the Holy Spirit is shattering people's self-righteousness. In other words, their hypocrisy is being exposed, just like Jesus did with the Pharisees. And third, the Holy Spirit convicts people of their false judgment of Christ. 
the judgment here, by the way, in its context, is that of the world under Satan's control. Its judgments are blind, they're faulty, misconstrued, and often even evil. And so the world can't make righteous judgments, but the Holy Spirit does. And so we need to thank Christ for sending the Holy Spirit as our helper. Number seven. How is the ascension of Jesus Christ significant for you today? Well, it permits access by believers to God. Here's what Hebrews 4 says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Wow, we need that. We need mercy and we need grace. So my friend, you can thank God that Jesus ascended, which permits now that we have access to God. We don't need a human priest because we have the great high priest, the God-man. Well, according to verse 14 there, it says that Christ passed through the heavens, plural. And I like what the MacArthur Study Bible here says about verse 14, so I quote, Just as the high priest under the old covenant passed through three areas to make the atoning sacrifice, Jesus passed through three heavens, the atmosphere around the earth, the stellar heaven, and then into God's abode. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of his people. That tabernacle was but a limited copy of the heavenly reality. When Jesus entered into the heavenly Holy of Holies, having accomplished redemption, the earthly copy was replaced by the reality of heaven itself. End quote. By the way, is it an interesting? For several centuries now, for nearly, what, approximately 2,000 years, there has not been a temple in Jerusalem. One day there will. There will. But it's not there at the moment. We have the real thing in heaven. That's where our heart and affection should lie. Number eight. Why is... The ascension of Jesus Christ significant because it inaugurates the church age, which we're in now. But it's also looking forward to Christ's second coming. We, uh, we already read Acts chapter 1. I'm not going to read that again. But we, we saw there in Acts 1 that our Lord's ascension into heaven was an important part of His ministry. For if He hadn't returned to the Father, we've read in places like John that, well, then He... He could not have sent the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there would not be a church age. There wouldn't be a church without the Spirit. So the church, of course, started with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And we're still in the church age. And now that the head of church is, 
is working with his people on earth, and he's, he is now helping to accomplish his purposes on earth through the Spirit's work in his people. We also saw in Acts 1 that it tells us the angels gave the believers assurance that Christ would come again. They said, why are you just standing here looking into heaven? This Jesus whom you saw go into heaven is going to come back the same way he went. He's going to come back to the same place, to the Mount of Olives there on the east side of Jerusalem. So regardless of whatever view you might take in regard to end times, pretty much all Christians agree that Jesus is coming again and that he can come at any time, at any moment. In fact, Jesus himself says in the last chapter of the Bible, I'm coming soon. I'm coming quickly. And it's something that we can rejoice in that he is. And so the truth, this truth, is a great motivation then for faithful service to God. The last significant thing that needs to be said about the resurrection, sorry, the ascension of Jesus Christ is this. It assures believers that their final home will be in heaven with Christ. The Bible talks about absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Jesus himself says in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, My friends, look what Jesus says here. Notice specifically, he, he talks about the Father's house. You need to understand something about Jewish culture. See, in Jewish culture, it was normal for the father and the children to live in the same house. They might have multiple rooms, depending on the size of the family, like we often do today. And when a son was ready to marry, that son would build another room onto the father's house. And when that son was ready to marry, the room was completed. The father would then give permission for the family to go get the bride. They would go to the bride's house and bring the bride to the father's house. You might find that culture a little bit strange. I understand. But that's, you need to understand that Jewish culture to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus is saying, in my Father's house are many rooms. And when the groom goes to receive his bride, he will take his bride to the Father's house, where he has prepared a room for you. Just imagine. I've been meditating upon this all week. Imagine what that's going to be like. The creator of the universe. The one who has made everything that we see and all the things we can't see as well. Is creating a room for you if you are a Christian. He's making a room for you. By the way, it's going to be a massive room. It is going to be huge. Just think about that. The one who's made the sun, the stars, the planets, the comets the grass, the animals, the people, everything you see in the telescopes, everything you see under the microscopes, that Creator is making a room for you so you can live with Him in the Father's house. 
And so now that he has returned to glory, the Bible says he is there. He is not sitting, doing nothing at the Father's right hand. He is busy working on your behalf. He is going to build the best room that you could possibly imagine, greater than you can imagine, I'm sure, in the best house that you could ever possibly imagine. And so after the millennium is done, the Bible says, if you don't believe me, read the end of your Bible. Revelation says, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of heaven, is going to come down out of heaven to the new earth. And so my friends, that is where you will live for all eternity with Jesus Christ there in the Father's house with a beautiful room created by Jesus Christ Himself. My friend, because Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, you and I are assured that we have a final home that is not just some boring description of heaven like you might see on a stained glass window. You're not going to be a fat little baby with wings, playing a harp, and sitting on a cloud. That's boring. Imagine that for all eternity. So don't imagine heaven being what you might see in a stained glass window or some medieval book. No, it's far greater than that. In fact, you can't even imagine how good it's going to be. But this I do know, my friends, it's your final home. It is in heaven, a real place with a real Jesus who is alive. And we will have true fellowship unhindered by our sin natures anymore. And so, my friend, if you're a Christian today, rejoice in this truth that you have a massive room awaiting you in the new Jerusalem. May God give us the grace to just understand this a little bit. Let's pray. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for these glorious, significant truths. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we would just get a glimpse, like Stephen did just before his death as he was being martyred. May we read the Scriptures to know more of our eternal home. Father, forgive us. May we, re- may we repent of our, of our idolatries where our hearts are too often set on things here on this earth. Instead, we ask you would change our hearts, change our affections, so that they would be set on things above and not on this earth. May those affections on things above change how we view things here on earth, earth, how we think, may we think differently and act differently based upon those affections. Thank you for your continuing work. Even as... This prayer is going to end with the words, In Jesus' name we pray. We recognize that Jesus' ministry continues on our behalf. And we're thankful that He is praying for us even now. And will pray for us until we go to heaven. Thank you for that work and and, and all that we've seen in the Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.